sky so bright, just like raindrops in the window pane. When your eyes are blue, something's wrong with you. Let me kiss the love light back again. Brown eyes, why are you blue? Brown Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be uh, moving right along, looking at chapter, looking, moving right along in my reading of Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. Specifically, I'll be looking at chapters 25 through 32, the next 100-page chunk in this this great epic novel. Um, so, as we saw in the last episode, Martin Aerosmith uh, has kind of. Uh, got a little frustrated at his old job. He originally was a small town uh, physician. Then he moved on to work in public health in the town of Nautilus in Iowa, mid-sized city. He was able to uh, learn a lot about the politics of being a public health official, but he kind of got beaten by the politics. He ended up making too many enemies in the pursuit of, of, of what needed to be done for, for uh, ensuring public health. And so he basically got pushed out of that job and he decided to take a job uh, basically as a doctor in in Chicago, basically to make money. And he vows at this point he's just going to focus on money. Um, now, as we go into, into chapter 25, we find just how long this lasts. Um, he it basically lasts one chapter. Uh, he pretty much right away becomes quite unhappy in Chicago. He only keeps this job for a year or so, um, basically because he misses um, research. Theoretical research, and that, that's been the tension throughout his whole career. Is he's always sort of wanted to be. He kind of uh, waffles. He he's somewhere in the middle ground. His advisor Gutlieb is very much of the of pure research, uh, pure scientist. But Aerosmith, he does have an interest in in things like public health and in some degree of practical research. But he's still really attracted by lab work. Uh, we'll get a little bit into the practical versus theoretical research a lot in the in the rest of the novel because that becomes a major crisis point for him personally and in his profession. Um, but he, you know, he's just not happy. He's not happy with New York and with society and all that. But in, in New York and the social circle, Leora and Martin's uh, relationship is is strained by his work in a way they they do have happy moments when they're like just walking around the city or things like that but uh at this clinic he's working at the roundsfield clinic he's simply not happy um for instance uh he actually gets uh told by the boss of at this clinic like if you do practical research you know then maybe you can get make more money and and martin aerosmith is a little bit uncertain about that so um he wants to finish up some research he was doing before when he was in the public health department. And this is what Lewis writes. When Angus Dewar discovered it, he hinted, Look here, Martin, I'm glad you're keeping on with your science, but if I were you, I wouldn't. I think waste too much energy on mere curiosity. Dr. Ronsfield was speaking about it the other day. We'd be glad to have you do all the research you want, only we'd like you to if you went to, at something practical. Take, for instance, if you could make a tabulation of the blood counts in a couple hundred cases of appendicitis and publish it. That gets somewhere. And you could sort of bring in a mention in the clinic and we'd all receive a little credit. And incidentally, we could raise you to 3,000 a year then. So this doesn't make uh, Martin Aerosmith too happy. So just to save the day, uh, he gets a letter uh, from Goatlabe, 
who is at the McGurk Institute of Biology in New York. And he basically says, I'm saving you. You come work with us, come to New York, and you can help with the lab. And um, Leora says, I'm simply going to adore New York. She knows right away that, that Martin Aerosmith is going to take the job. Her husband's going to take the job. So uh, they go off to New York. So this experiment in a private clinic where he's going to try to just make money, it lasts absolutely one chapter out of 40 chapters. So it's, it's, um, it's a phase in his life, but it's a very, very short one that doesn't really, that's, a, that's another failure in his, in his uh, career. So anyways, moving on to chapter 26. Um, now, Aerosmith seems pretty happy initially. He's able to engage right away with Gutley, but they're old friends. They haven't seen each other for a number of years, but both are in a much happier place than they were the last time they met on the, on the street. You've seen Gutlieb's own adventure earlier in the book. Um, and he's really excited about like the new technology. It's kind of centr it's centered in the centrifuge, this very rare, it's like almost one of a kind centrifuge that the Institute has. And Martin kind of geeks out over this. Um, but, you know, it's not all rosy. For instance, he basically needs to learn, retrain himself. And there's a really interesting commentary here on education, like a real education, right? So we think of education as you go to school, you get grades, take tests, but that's not really education. Um, we have a better definition of it here where Gottlieb says, succeed, I've heard that word. Is it English? Oh yes, it's a word that little schoolboys use at the University of Winnemac. It means passing examinations, but there are no examinations to pass here. Martin, let us be clear. You know something of laboratory techniques. You have heard about diesel bacillier. You are not a good chemist in mathematics, pfft, most terrible. But you have a curiosity and you're stubborn. You do not accept rules. Therefore, I think you will make a very good scientist or a very bad one. And if you are bad enough, you'll be popular with the rich ladies who rule the city in New York and can give lectures for the living or even become, if it will get to be plausible enough, a college president. So anyway, it will be interesting. Um, so, you know. It's what it's going to be, he says, but you're going to have to relearn how to, how to be a practical lab scientist. So he sort of needs some new education. So there's a lot of new characters here. I don't know how much I want to talk about these. Uh, there's, there's one, Terry Wicket, who he ends up kind of not liking because he's kind of an annoying guy. But at the end, he kind of becomes a friend of him of sorts. We have uh, Ross McGurk, who McGurk Institute, he's guy who runs it. His wife, Ross, is, a, is an anti-suffragist, which is kind of an interesting, very, very minor subplot here. Of course, that was a real thing. Yeah, you know, historians nowadays maybe focus a lot on the suffragist movements, but there was a very strong anti-suffragist movement. You know, they weren't necessarily anti-feminist. They just kind of, I guess, embraced the separate, separate spheres idea. Uh, this idea that there's a separate role for women in society, kind of separate but equal um, sort of role for women that kind of is rooted in the se separate spheres ideology. But there were many of them. It wasn't that all women supported the, the right to vote. There were actually many active anti-suffragist women. And here's one of them. Maybe you can see it as conservatism. I don't know. Um, but the other thing is Martin still has to deal with the reality of the bosses. And this is going to be, be clear over the next few chapters when Martin... Uh, just really finds that he's surrounded by the same kind of hierarchies that plagued him in other parts of his career. And whenever you have that, whenever you have like anything, a social relation and work, you're going to have politics there. And this is, it's, it's not fatalist. It's just reality, I guess, that there's always going to be office politics 
he is much happier just in the lab, I suppose, like Gutlib. But, you know, he has to kind of deal with the reality of, of this hierarchy that exists. In fact, the next chapter, chapter 27, gets a lot into the class structure in, in the lab. And, you know, Lewis begins to play with this a little bit, his own kind of, he's trying to learn how to do things in the lab. He's also trying to manage these relationships between these people and all these new friends and colleagues. Um, but the big thing that kind of enters into the story in chapter 27 is the war. It's World War I. Um, the World War One has been in the backdrop of much of the novel in the middle part, but it doesn't affect the United States. It's really like some commentary, I think, on U.S. isolationism. That the world was consuming itself for three years, and the U.S. didn't seem much to care about it. Or it was just sort of sitting and doing its own thing. Just like Martin, just like Gottlieb, just like, you know, U.S. as a whole, just doing its own thing, right? Um, but that isolationism ends when the U.S. enters the war, and then this lab gets basically drafted into the war effort. One guy goes off to actually to France to fight in the trenches, uh, in the artillery. Uh, is that Terry Wickett? It might be Wickett who actually goes. The Now, Aerosmith, Gottlieb, and the others, they all, well, Gottlieb doesn't become an officer because he's got a German, um, he's a German, you know, he's born in Germany. Um, but the rest of them, they get uniforms, they get, they, they get officer rank. Um, and they don't go to France, but they have to repurpose the lab for making serums, making Sarah. I'm not quite sure what Sarah is, but make, you know, make stuff for the front, make supplies for the health of soldiers and to save people's lives, hopefully. So they basically end up having to do that. And Aerosmith has to set his own research aside. Maybe the most interesting thing in this chapter, though, is the fate of Gottlieb because um, of this anti-German sentiment. Now, as I recall, unlike in World War II, there's a little bit of this in World War II, but not much. But in World War I, there was a strong kind of, there's a large population of Americans who maybe were born in Germany or have spoke, spoke German at home, German communities, especially in the Midwest, especially kind of in the, that, that. It's Midwest part of America where much of the early part of the novel is said. This is in New York now, but Gottlieb himself is is one of these German immigrants. And here's a little bit of commentary on it. Quote, always in Paris or in Bonn, Max Gottlieb had looked to America as a land which, in its freedom from royalist traditions, in its contact with the realities of cornfields and blizzards and town meetings, had set its face against the puerile pride of war. He believed that he had ceased to be a German now and become a countryman of Lincoln. The European war was one thing. Besides his discharge from Winnemac, he had ever broken his sardonic serenity. In the war, he could see no splendor nor hope, but only crawling tragedy. He treasured his months of work and could talk in France and England and Italy. He loved his French and English and Italian friends, and he loved his ancient Korpbrunder. And very well indeed, beneath his mocking, did he love the Germans with whom he had drudged and drunk. His sister's sons, on home craving vacations, had seen them in babyhood, in boyhood, in rough, roughing young manhood, went out with the Kaiser's colors in 1914. Um, end quote. So it goes on with this for a couple pages, but the, the, the theme here is clear, that he sees the tragedy of war, he sees it as broken friendships and broken families, and he himself knows people who are fighting for the Germans in the war because they're family connections. They're just one generation... Um, far but the propaganda about the germans as 
baby killers as with their soap factories in Belgium and all this other um, um, orchestras outlawing the music of Beethoven, all the anti-German propaganda in the United States. It, it isolates someone like Gottlieb, who loves America, but, but also loves Germany and, and, and really, I wouldn't say his loyalties are divided in this regard, but he's, he's more prone to be neutral. But anyways, he doesn't get a uniform. He's not drafted into the war effort. He just continues to do his own work in the lab, I guess, uh, just as a normal guy, not, a, not an officer. But it's a really, I think, fascinating subplot and part of the story, for me anyways. <clears throat> so moving on to chapter 28, uh, the war comes to an end, um, and, uh, and Aerosmith is all frustrated. Uh, he's an officer now, but in the military, but... He's not accomplished anything in his career, in his profession. And this is resolved very quickly in chapter 28. Um, you know, something about the structure of this novel comes to mind here. It's, it's pretty fast paced. I mean, it's, it's a long book. It's four, almost 500 pages, but it's pretty fast paced. A lot happens in this book. And, and you know, as I was going back and making notes, there were whole sections of, of, his, of his life that I sort of just sort of forgot about um, from when I first read it. It's, it, it, it does speed along, and, and this is a good example of where a crisis is introduced and resolved within the same chapter. In this case, it's his real frustration that he wasted a year of, 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 his, of his life. It's not the first time he's done this. He's done this several times in his career, but he really wants to focus on his research now that the war is ending. And eventually, within a few pages, he finally does make a big uh, discovery. He, he finds an antitoxin discovery, and I'm still not quite sure on all the science with this. This is, I guess, before antibiotics were really taking off or readily available. There were still, you know, bacteria still was a major threat to people's life and limb. It's like before you had easy treatments to, easy accessible treatments to venereal diseases, things like that. But basically, he has like this, this, um, this penicillin moment where he's got this test tube with some bacteria and he notices that the bacteria are all gone one day. And he realizes there must be something in the test tube that killed the bacteria. And he begins to zero in on what that is. He calls it some X principle. That is, you know, that's his big discovery and it's an antibiotic discovery. Now he takes this discovery to Gottlieb and and Gottlieb says, like, oh, get back to the lab, you know, do more research, do more experiments. Martin, though, wants to use it. And I guess he wants to experiment on people with boils at the hospital. And, and Gottlieb's like, don't do this. And, you know, this is going to be the big tension for most of the rest of the novel. Is to what degree should, you know, should medicine do whatever it can to, to treat people as rapidly as possible, save lives, relieve suffering, or to what degree do you, is the most important thing the, the proper scientific method going through, you know, every step of the way, experiment, you know, clinical studies and all that. It's, it's not quite that mundane here, um, but at the heart of it is, you know, do you go forward with what can alleviate suffering or do you, it's the big goal, the big discovery, something you can publish and put your name on. Um, so he says this. He brings this discovery, to this ex-principle to Gottlieb. He thinks he knows what it is. And Gottlieb says, oh, so beautiful. 
You let a doctor try it before you finish your research. You want fake reports of cures to get in the newspaper, to be telegraphed around places, and have everyone in the world that has a pimple come tumbling in to be cured, so we'll never be able to work? You want to be a miracle man and not a scientist. You do not want to complete things. You wander off monkey skipping and flap doodling with colon bacillus before you finish with the staff, before you have really begun your work, before you have found out what the nature of the X principle. Get out of my office. You are a, a college president. Next, I know you'll be dying with tubs and get your picture in the papers for a smart cure vendor. So this relationship with Gottlieb and Martin are, is actually damaged by this. Um, but notice he again says, I, you, could, you could be college president. We're reminded, of course, of Gottlieb's own problems with deans, Dean Sylvia and other leadership at the University of Winnemac. Um, but he's enthused by this. It's like a purpose for living. It's like what he's wanted his whole life, but he ends up being really overworked and he can't really manage his home life with Leora. Um, eventually, Leora will be sacrificed for, for science, essentially, which is a, a, the tragedy of the novel in a way, but uh, that'll come a little bit later. We'll talk about that in the next and final episode on Aerosmith. Um, so moving on in chapter 29, uh, we've already seen Gutlieb's position about the discovery. Now we learn what is the, the feeling of the other people in the Institute, the bosses. And the bosses discover Martin's breakthrough and they want to basically publish it to get the name out there for the Institute. Eventually it's it's like a flashback to, to other things that we've seen in the novel, like Gottlieb's working for a corporate uh, research firm or Martin's own feelings when he was in Chicago where they're like, well, why don't you just, you know, just publish your findings, find some kind of easy discovery, publish it, get our name out there. We'll, we'll raise your salary a little bit. This idea that maybe we can commercialize this or monetize this or at least get the name of the McGluck Institute out there through this great discovery you, you, you can find. And Martin feels, you know, to what degree is this still my own research? It's kind of like the old problem of the corporate uh, medicine and also the tension between science and publication because you kind of agree with the bosses here. It's like if you found something really important, you should publish it. But once you publish it, if you're a scientist and you publish something, you lose, you lose it. It becomes public domain essentially. Now, this is exactly what Gottlieb, I think, prefers. He's not in it for the money, really. He's in it for the thrill, for the discovery, for being a good scientist, for going through, being a proper scientific, uh, you know, through the science methodology and all that. That's why I didn't like the corporate medicine, the corporate, um, corporate research that he was in before, because when he had a new discovery, he wanted to release it to the public. And they said, no, no, we're going to patent it. So to a degree, I think Martin's in the wrong here. Yes, you should publish your science. You science scientists have an obligation. They don't own their findings. Um, but you know, he's 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 a more complex figure than I think a lot of the people around him. He's more uh, ambivalent about these things. It's like the characters around him give him the 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 debate. You know, you have the politician, you have the pure researcher, you have the people who want to monetize and commercialize medicine. You have. Um, you know, all these different perspectives. And Martin's always in the middle. He's kind of a, a fuzzy figure that is in a little bit of all these things. Um, but anyways, that's this this chapter. This chapter is, is a good one to get to yet another tense reality about science. This to, is, is what degree is science about publication? And 
greater needs of humanity or the greater needs of the Institute in this case. So um, this is setting up something important for the rest of the novel too, this discovery of Aerosmith's of, of uh, useful antitoxin and antibiotic, essentially. Um, then we get uh, chapter 30, which is all about the decline of the Institute that he works for, this decline internally. We see members leave. We see a lot of internal fighting over leadership. Eventually, Gutlieb becomes the head, and this sort of dooms the Institute. He's a, he's a good scientist. He's a hardworking scientist. He, he, he's on the right side of you know, that part of it, but he's a horrible politician. He's a poor, horrible administrator. You know, he's not the right person to run an institute like this. Um, and it kind of leads to, to full chaos. So we see the gradual decline of, of this institute over time. Um, now, it's, it's at this point that Sondelius returns into the story. Remember, Sondelius was this public health guru who originally encouraged Martin or, or inspired Martin to become, uh, to get involved in public health uh, way back in the early part of the novel. Now, he's returned from Africa. He was working on like uh, African sleeping sickness, finding cures and treating that. And he comes back and he ends up kind of becoming part of the Institute himself. In fact, he becomes almost Martin's uh, helper because he, he kind of clings to Martin's research. Uh, now, here's what Martin discovers, though. Martin does make progress. He does listen to Gutlieb in a way and, and, and does do further research. And he finds this, quote, He found that rats fed with phage failed to come down with plague, that after phage feeding, bacillus pestis disappeared from carrier rats, which, without themselves being killed thereby, harbored and spread chronic plague. And that finally he could cure the disease. He was as absorbed and happy and nervous as in the first days of the ex-principal. He worked all night at the microscope under the lone light, fishing out with a glass pipette drawn fine as a hair, one single plague basilicus. So he learns, this is going to be important too later on, he learns how to protect himself from uh, the plague infested rats that he's experimenting on. He, he knows how to, you know, he learns all the rubber gloves, the, the leather boots, all the protective clothing um, and he's really making progress in this discovery and this is what Sondelius kind of even though a more experienced doctor he actually becomes sort of Martin's uh, a collaborator if you will or yeah I think collaborator is the right word there um, and it's kind of a happy moment for him uh, but again he can't manage family life and and his scientific life so, but the, the, the Institute is sort of in internal institutional chaos. Um, so now uh, we can start to really talk about the climax of, of the novel and this the last 10 chapters or so. Um, we start here at chapter 31 and we get this beautiful description, beautiful horrific description of the spread of the plague. Quote, from Yunnan in China, from the clattering bright bazaars crept something invisible in the sun and diligent by dark, creeping, sinister, ceaseless creeping across the Himalayas, down through walled marketplaces, across the desert, along hot yellow rivers, into an American missionary compound, creeping silent sure, and here and there on its way a man was black and stilled with plague. In Bombay a new dockhand, unaware of things, spoke boisterously over his family rice of a strange new custom of rats. This, those princes of the sewer, swift to dart and turn, had gone mad. They've come out of the warehouse floor, ignoring the guards, springing up, as though they were trying to fly and straight away falling dead. They had poked at them, but they did not move. Three days later, that dock guard died of the plague. 
before he died from his dock, a ship with a cargo of wheat steamed off to Marseille. There was no sickness on it all the way. There was no reason why at Marseille it should not lie next to a tramp steamer, nor why that steamer pitching down to Montevideo, with nothing more sensational than a discussion between the supercargo and the second officer in the matter of a fifth A should not berth at near the SS Pendown Castle bound for the island of St. Hubert and add cocoa to its present cargo of lumber. And so the end result of this uh, is it ends up the plague through these rats traveled by boats or, or, or carried by boats ends up in St. Hubert. Now, this shouldn't be the reason why the people of St. Hubert will be infested with the plague. St. Hubert has public health institutions set up for this. They have a rat catcher. But politics leads to the firing, the, basically the closing down of the office of the rat catcher in St. Hubert. So there's no one there to really keep an eye, tabs on the rats. And so when the rats do arrive in St. Hubert, they spread throughout the island. Um, so politics kills the rat control and allows the plague to spread. Um, and politics of public health are going to come back into Martin Aerosmith's life with the with this outbreak in St. Hubert. It's a really good chapter that I think speaks to us today. As we're in the middle of this pandemic and people are seeing politics get in the way of public health. Um, people, you know, democracy sometimes seems to get in the way of public health. How can we control disease and maintain our democratic principles all these things are real problems you know a max a mask mandate or uh, quarantines enforcing quarantines all these things these are challenges and it's so easy for political conflicts the next election so to say, for example gets in the way of properly addressing public health and that's what happened here um now, one of the major public health guys in St. Hubert also dies, and this leads uh, like, like a lower-level doctor uh, on the island, this guy named Stokes, Dr. Stokes. Um, he was, he's a parish medical officer uh, for some, um, some church there. Uh, here's the description. He did not remain in the rustic reaches of St. Swithin, where he belonged, but snooped all over the island, annoying in... In Chicape Jones, he was an MB of Edinburgh and he had served in the African bush and he had backwater fever and cholera and most other reasonable afflictions. He had come to St. Hubert only to recover his red blood corpuscles and to disturb the unhappy Cape Jones. He was not a nice man. He had beaten Cape Jones at tennis with a nasty unsporting serve, the sort of serve you'd expect from an American. Um, but this guy, this guy who's like a, a nobody doctor in... St. Hubert, he's the guy who calls the McGurk Institute, calls Gottlieb and says, we need help. Well, the plague's broken out in, in St. Hubert. Um, and then we get to chapter 32, which uh, basically Martin is the one. Everything comes together for Martin Aerosmith here. He's got the cure. Um, now, do we use it? Of course, Martin's opinion is we need to test it. He's tested it on other things. He's cured it in rats, but he hasn't yet tested it in humans. So his method that he established, and this is going to be debated for the next few chapters, to what degree is it ethical and moral to do this, his idea is take a community afflicted by the plague, inoculate half the people with this phage, um, 
and leave the other people uninoculated, and then you can actually have a control group and you can test. Is this effective? And if it is proven effective, then you can expand it to other other people. But this means you're putting in half the population, probably randomly, at risk of death. And is that just to do? Um, Sondelius, who's of course working with uh, Aerosmith on this phage, says, no, you should just treat everyone in St. Hubert and you know, if, if that's going to save lives and you may not have that your control experiment, but you're going to save lives. And so you should do it. You know, you know, it somewhat works. And, and so if you can save any lives, you should do it. You shouldn't doom half of the community to death or risk, risk of death just to test a scientific theory. And, and here Martin's being more like the Goldlieb. This is what Goldlieb would say, you know, do the proper experiment, go through the methods. Otherwise you're just a snake oil salesman. And so dealer says, well, the snake oil works, it seems, and we should put it out there. But anyways, with this debate still raging, they head off for St. Hubert. He's with Leora, Sondelius, Martin. They go there to, to uh, deal with the plague in this Caribbean island. And this brings us really to the climax of the novel. And... I'm going to be really excited. I'm going to be really happy to talk about that and the rest of the novel in the very next episode. So um, let me know what you think of, of Martin Aerosmith, this book, Aerosmith, uh, Sinclair Lewis, or any other topics that's come up. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will uh, reply to you and uh, happily... Um, uh, I'll... I'll Hopefully I can learn something from you as you share your own ideas about this book with me. Um, so anyways, uh, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time when I give you my concluding thoughts on this novel. Later. They begin disappearing like the April snow. Brown eyes, what can I do? Don't keep the sunshine off of your eyes. Say if you are wise.